You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill iGEM. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Isaac Lee, a researcher and an assistant teaching professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Lee and his team are working on creating DNA-based tools to investigate how cells physically interact with each other. They use advanced imaging techniques to observe and measure these interactions at the molecular level to study how the mechanical processes within cells contribute to diseases like cancer. Dr. Lee was named one of the six UBCO Researchers of the Year in 2023 in the Natural Sciences and Engineering category. So jumping right into it, Dr. Lee, could you tell us a little bit about your research and your personal journey to where you are right now in your career path? Great. Yeah. So um, my research right now is in uh, kind of a merge between DNA nanotech, single molecule biophysics and uh, mechanobiology. Uh, So what we do uh, typically is we create, we design new DNA nanostructures. So uh, usually, you know, DNA secondary structures and new forms of DNA secondary structures. And we try to use single molecule methods like single molecule FRET, force spectroscopy, we pull on the molecules or we observe them. So we understand uh, their dynamics and we try to understand how uh, mechanical forces change their conformation and so on. And then we basically want to apply these things to uh, to cells and look at the mechanical interactions uh, between cells. And so for example, cell-cell adhesion, uh, how much forces are being exerted between cells, and uh, when cells migrate, you know, what kind of force do they exert? And ultimately, how does the force translate to downstream signaling uh, and so on? So that's kind of where my, my uh, research is. It's really a blend of, you know, biophysics, bioengineering, uh, cell biology, mathematics, and all sorts of stuff. So, so it's, uh, it's kind of covering a lot of ground. Um, my research trajectory. So I did my undergraduate at uh, University of Toronto. Uh, I was in an engineering science program, and then we, uh, in the third year, we went into this nano engineering uh, option, which no longer exists. Uh, and so back then, I was mostly like you know just material engineering, um, and you know has uh, many flavors of physics, chemistry, materials, and so on. And then I joined my uh, honors project doing kind of protein engineering in the biomedical engineering program. And then I was trying to create proteins that can be changed uh, based on uh, chemical stimulus or you know, fusing proteins together to see how they can interact and so on. And then for a PhD, I then moved on to physical chemistry, looking at single molecule uh, 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 physical chemistry, so how proteins unfold based on force. So we use the atomic force microscope to pull individual proteins and polymers and see how much force it takes to unravel them and try to understand, you know, energetics. So basic science things like, you know, hydration-free energy of uh, individual uh, side chains. Uh, and then I was like, hmm, you know, what can I do with this? <laughs> so, you know, I did a lot of stuff with forces, like single molecule, and so on. So like, hey, you know, biophysics is pretty cool because you get to, you know, study biology and you get to play with all these different techniques. um, So I'm a very visual person. So that's why, you know, choosing biophysics where you can actually see, you know, how things happen uh, directly is is very cool. So I did my postdoc at uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for biophysics for a couple of years, and then I moved to UBC Okanagan to start my own lab, and uh, that's what we do. 
Very cool. It's quite a journey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you for that um, summary of your, your journey and your research. Um, so I find it interesting that your lab is focusing on mechanobiology of molecular interactions like within cells and then also cell-cell interactions up to even the tissue level to pinpoint the roots of different diseases. So I'm curious how you came to the realization that like the mechanics of molecular interactions and cell interactions were so crucial to disease origin and progression. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think uh, you know some of the early realization that uh, mechanical force play a role uh, uh, is uh, um, there was a study from UPenn Dan Stitcher's lab where they were looking at stem cell differentiation and uh, you know they showed that depending on the, the mechanical environment, uh, stem cells differentiate based on uh, how rigid the substrate is, right? And so if you have a hard substrate, it differentiates into more like a bone-like cell. When it's soft, it becomes uh, more like a brain-like cell. Uh, and so, and so you also know that you know we can sense forces, like we have a sense of touch, right? And so, kind of, you know, there is this field that emerges out of those really is the mechanobiology. So, how do cells actually sense its environment, uh, not just chemically but mechanically, like physically? Right? And so, so I think traditionally people kind of use the AFM, something to poke the cell and look at how things happen. Uh, and I think just because of my background in single molecule uh, fluorescence and looking at, you know, micro, macromolecule conformations, I, I begin to feel, oh, you know, can we develop uh, molecular tools to look at the forces that are happening at the molecular scale? Uh, and really, if you think about it, how uh, cells interact with its environment uh, is through adhesion, right? If there's no adhesion, there's no friction, they basically just slide, right? So, you know, the cell, the, the reason why a cell can spread is because something is anchoring them. And those are anchoring points are uh, adhesion proteins. And so there must be forces applied there. And so if we can understand these individual forces, then we can really understand what are the inputs to this, you know, cell black box. And knowing that will, you know, allow us to, I guess, figure out the mechanisms uh, later. So that's, I guess, hopefully a good answer for you. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That me personally, I don't have a super high um, level of like science knowledge because I'm only a second year student and I'm not sure how well versed the rest of our listeners are with cellular, with cellular biophysics and nanotechnology and everything in that realm. So could you explain what mechanobiology is at a fifth grade level, if you can? <laughs> I think uh, at a very basic level, mechanobiology just looks at any physical interactions, not chemical, physical interactions the cell have with its environment, how cell respond to it. Yeah, so so essentially it's the cell's uh, sense of touch, right? Okay, okay, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, kind of transitioning, like switching gears towards more specific applications. Um, something that I know I've been reading a lot about as they're coming out and being approved by the FDA or new gene therapies using like new uh, delivery system. So for example, like Imlogic was just approved. It's a new oncolytic gene therapy uh, for melanoma. At the same time, you have, you know, exosomes, li lipid nanoparticles, DNA cages, and like new types of viruses, like HSV was just recently approved as well. Um, so I'm wondering what some of the most recent advancements or breakthroughs in drug delivery systems are that you find the most exciting and you think have the most promise? Yeah. So, uh, First of all, I have to claim that I am not an expert in drug delivery systems, but uh, I, I find you know the whole lipid nanoparticle system quite interesting. 
you know, number one, it is uh, it is something that helped shape the whole mRNA vaccination that you know everybody was taking uh, those vaccines during COVID. So that's that's in terms of the societal impact. I think it has the most recent uh, recent huge impact to society. And I think just in general, how efficient it is at you know uh, uh, delivering uh, um, I guess genetic materials to the cell. Uh, it's 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 pretty interesting. So to me, that is kind of the most interesting things. I'm also very interested in you know virus like particle delivery because really like viruses, you know, are they live or are they dead? If they're you consider them as uh, dead, right? Then it's really just through some kind of physical uh, interactions that they can get their genetic material into the cell and at a much much higher efficiency. Uh, than you know any of the delivery system. So uh, viruses intrinsically interest me. Uh, so I think that excites me very much from a fundamental perspective. But I think uh, from a practical perspective, I think everybody when they hear about a virus, they may be like, oh my god, I don't want to put a virus in me. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what's uh, what's a good answer. But I this is just my take on my personal interest. Okay. And I know you, you work a lot with exosomes for, for drug delivery. Um, can you kind of explain how exosomes are used for drug deli delivery and then also for diagnosis potentially? Yeah, I, I am not terribly familiar with the delivery part. I know that people have tried to engineer drugs in, into the cargo of exosomes because uh, one of the very interesting aspects about exosomes is that uh, you know, it's everywhere in the body, all the cells secrete them and cells also uptake them uh, from very distal sites in your body. And so it's kind of like a whole body communication, uh, long range communication between between cells. And people have also shown that exosomes cross the blood to brain barrier. And so a lot of interesting potential is using exosome as a delivery, uh, delivery uh, vehicle. Um, I am not sure what's the state of, state, state of the art for exosome drug delivery, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, and so a lot of my knowledge about the exosome really is just from reading the current literature. We don't actively work on the exosome delivery or the diagnosis uh, part, um, but uh, for diagnosis, the, the idea really is, uh, is that, you know, it takes a chunk of your cell um, cytosol, uh, and it secretes them out, and so you can get snapshot of what the cells composed of, and potentially that can tell you uh, disease state. Um, but that said, you know the challenge really is that you know a lot of cell types secrete exosomes. So can you get you know the right ones? Uh, can you get just exosomes? Right? How do you differentiate the subtypes? and make the most impactful diagnosis. So there are a lot of noise uh, in what you collect from the blood. And so how do you be specific, right? So I think that those are the challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, and I know you're not super like an, an expert in like the disease um, delivery pathway, but are there any specific like diseases or medical conditions that you're hoping your research would um, target? Uh, not specifically. Okay, <laughs> I mean, okay, no worries. I have another question, kind of just going back to the, I guess, the foundations of your lab. Um, I think for a lot of people who haven't worked a lot with uh, mechanobiology, some of the like microscopy techniques that you use might be a little bit mysterious. So is there a way that you could explain potentially like single molecule fluorescence, like SM threats, 
a little bit or maybe SMFS uh, in a way that <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so uh, so the whole single molecule field is built based on the fact that you can either observe or manipulate individual uh, biomolecules. Uh, and so, oh, Emily is frozen, so I'm not sure if she's still with us. But I can uh, still hear you guys. I'm not sure if you can hear me, okay. but. We yeah, can hear you. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so um, the ability to observe molecules is very important. So, you know, with uh, the advancement of uh, high sensitivity cameras and illumination, so you can actually see individual fluorophores on a biological molecule, right? And so now, if you imagine if this bi biological molecule has two fluorophores, one is a donor fluorophore, one is the FRET acceptor then if there is a conformational dynamics in this molecule, then you will see at this single molecule level, there is gonna be a threat. Right? So if you simultaneously monitor, for example, the red signal, which is the acceptor and donor, which is the green, you can see their relative intensity and you can understand what is the conformational dynamics. And so when you look at uh, the raw data for single molecule movies, they really just look like, you know, like a black screen and there are bright dots on it. And each dot is, a molecule, and we know it's a single molecule because there is something called photo bleaching. So the fluorophore stays alive at a constant intensity, and then at some point it dies. And when it dies, it doesn't die slowly. It's a single step death. So if it dies in a single step, then we know that this is a single molecule. And so then we have the confidence that we are looking at single molecule. So, um, so that's that's single molecule fluorescence and single molecule FRET. And a lot of those have been uh, quite a foundational in uh, in you know the subsequent uh, super resolution microscopy, uh, particularly uh, the ones that are based on single molecule localization. So if you can observe individual molecules where they are, and if you can introduce some kind of blinking of these molecules, uh, then you can basically create a super resolution images based on precisely where the center of uh, the locations of where the molecule is. So those are um, uh, foundations for a super resolution uh, microscopy, at least one type of super resolution microscopy. Now, okay, and when you're talking about the, the temporal bleaching, or is that like a storm sort of system? Exactly, yeah. So storm based uh, is also based on uh, uh, the blinking of the molecules. Uh, and so you can introduce uh, blinking in many different ways. You can, you know, use, um, you can use the photophysical properties. Uh, you can also use binding unbinding and something called paint, P-A-I-N-T. Uh, so uh, those are the ones that we use the most. We rely on the binding unbinding of fluorophores uh, that's tagged onto a single strand DNA as the way to introduce blinking. So those are a single molecule fluorescence, how you see the molecule. There's a whole area of single molecule force spectroscopy. So uh, uh, SM, uh, FS, uh, those are the ones where you can manipulate individual molecules. So imagine you can have a very small tweezer. Uh, you can grab onto the ends of your molecule. You can pull on it, right? If you can imagine proteins are, for example, this folded domain of amino acid, if you pull it, you're going to unfold the protein. And when you unfold the protein, this becomes uh, a unstructured uh, polymer chain. And so you can basically monitor the amount of force you exert on this molecule and how much changes you have for the distance you monitor. And then you can uh, use that to infer that, oh, now I have a domain uh, unfolding when I apply a force. And you can get all sorts of uh, parameters like the energy, uh, of folding and the rate constant and so on. We can extract a lot of individual parameters. You can also look at 
interactions between molecules, how one molecule makes domain more stable, all sorts of interesting stuff. So, uh, so those are the areas of uh, single molecule uh, force activity. So we try to combine both of them. Uh, so then we can create molecules that can report force by fluorescence. Right? So speaking of um, you know, strong technologies that's helping you in your research, I started to ask that with the rise of AI technology, how does your team leverage AI tools in your research if you guys do? Or if not, do you ever see it being leveraged in the future? Yeah, this is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think AI is very interesting. Um, I think, mm -hmm. you know, hmm, we haven't really used AI much in our research. I mean, we've used machine learning for uh, simple tasks like, you know, image segmentations or, you know, help, helping us to, uh, uh, you know, read images and uh, figure out what features there are. So there are tools existing for that, but I wouldn't call that, I mean, it is AI to some extent, but it's really just machine learning. I think when you, what you're talking about might be something more like a, you know, GPT type of language model mm. or some other more advanced AI. Um, I think AI is quite powerful and people have used this in fields like super resolution microscopy where you can identify, uh, do things much better than what we, you know, create models for. And so those are definitely areas of research, not my actually, uh, my active areas of research, but people have used them. Uh, AI can help, for example, process data much more quickly, but you always have to do trainings on, on them and the quality of the training uh, is very, very important. So I think to some extent, uh, it's going to be very useful, but I think uh, we have to know exactly what are the limitations and, um, and how to use them, right? So if we train some model and it's poorly trained and we didn't know that, and we lose the result, then that could lead to a lot of bias. <clears throat> uh, mm -hmm. So that that kind of in in terms of uh, kind of analyzing result, uh, in terms of using AI to help research, I know I, I know people have used them to assist their writing, uh, maybe some basic research. Uh, I think to some degree it is useful, uh, but I think uh, it should not replace uh, you know active thinking because. Uh, you know, this is what I've been telling uh, my student as well, like, you know, the more you rely on AI for one particular task, for example, you know, if I don't write very well, ask AI to keep rephrasing things for me, if you're not learning actively from that, then you lose that uh, neural network in your own brain, you're, you know, contracting out to an AI, right? And so you will lose the ability to do things. And so is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, <laughs> Up to debate, right? You know, if we use calculators, do you still need to know how to do everything by hand? I think, I think so. I think it's useful, but you know, there are also people who argue you don't. And so, uh, personally, I just don't want any student to lose ability to do things in the case you don't have access to AI. And hence, I think uh, we should all train our own brain to be uh, very good at doing things, and AI should be an assisting technology to make things better, but should not be replacing. Uh, our own functions. Yeah. yeah, no, I would agree with you that it's like, because we want, we don't want to be too reliable on technology. Like, yeah. it's helpful, like you said, but also it would be good to have these abilities to do things on our own as well with our own brain. Exactly. Um, so, apart from use of AI, are there any other ethical or regulatory considerations that are associated with any um, aspects of your research that you or the rest of your team have to consider? 
not much. We do very basic mm -hmm. uh, science, and so everything we do we deal with are not alive, well, except for cells. <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> so uh, we're in a safe space. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I guess my my next question is kind of shifting gears towards more of the educational side. Um, so I know that you have a lot of like undergraduate students, obviously, that work uh, in your lab. So how do you normally engage and involve students in your research projects? And what kind of opportunities do you provide for undergraduates and then even master's students uh, to contribute and learn in the field of mechanobiology? Yeah, so uh, uh, I teach a third year uh, course and fourth year course, one in instrumentation, one in uh, about physics. And so uh, a lot of times students get interested uh, either from taking my course or maybe learning from their friend about what we do. Uh, they typically just come to me and, uh, and say, hey, is there any opportunities to do like honors thesis research in my lab? And I, you know, if there are space and I have the capacity, I generally, uh, you know, offer something to them if we have the right project or the right person. And so typically I try to understand what the students want, right? You know, is the student more interested in cell stuff, more interested in more abstract molecular systems? Uh, and then we can assign the student uh, different type of projects to, to see, you know, if that's uh, the most suitable project for the student. Uh, very often, a student will come to our uh, group meetings to attend a few group meetings to see what people actually work on and then decide if they join the group or, you know, any particular projects they're interested in. Uh, and so typically, students, uh, I would like students to start, for example, in the summer as a summer either intern or a summer student, uh, and then they can then continue on uh, in the fall to do their honors. So that gives them kind of a head start and uh, a longer project term. Uh, so that's what I typically do with undergraduate students. Um, and for a master student, uh, you know, first of all, it's really the student reaching to me, I, uh, mostly by email and say, hey, you know, uh, I want to research in this area. And then we typically uh, have a conversation on Zoom. Uh, and then uh, just to understand what the student really wants, what is the career trajectory, um, what particular interest the student have. If it really aligns with what we do, that's great. If not, you know, I typically just suggest, hmm, you know what, if you're interested in this particular area, talk to these other profs. They might have something that's more suitable for you than, than I do. Uh, and uh, if uh, things work out, uh, then, um, then, you know, we get the students <laughs> to work in the lab. It's that easy. Uh, so I know that you work more in like in DNA nanotechnology and it's a little similar to synthetic biology since like they're both interested in DNA and genetic material. But I'd say synthetic bi biology is more focusing on like modifying biological systems and things like that. So seeing, seeing as like you're not initially in the field of synthetic biology, what made you decide to be a PI for an iGEM team? And how do you think iGEM benefits students? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, so I can tell you that um, I'm interested in iGEM because I was uh, iGEMer a, a long time ago as well. Uh, so I think it's, a, it's an amazing experience uh, because it's one of those things where you get to, uh, you know, direct your own research within a team. Well, not direct, but like participate in, in research that's not uh, under any particular uh, professors. Uh, and so I think it's a very valuable thing where, and I see students drive this with a lot of passion. And in terms of the project, the, the creativities that students 
demonstrates yeah. time is much more than what we have because they're really not bound by anything, right? Because we're like, okay, you know, it has to be, you have to apply for a grant, has to be realistic, right? There's a lot of constraints uh, that we have uh, in terms of uh, what we can do, but the students are not bound by anything. So, you know, I, I know at UBCO, you guys are doing completely different things and super creative and it's, it's really, really cool to see uh, how that comes. And so, so that's why I just want to continue to support uh, students doing that. And I think iGEM being an international competition is something I also want the student to have because, you know, you need to see outside of, of the university, you know, what uh, the whole world is operating at, like what level they are, uh, how competitive uh, they are, and, and so on. So you can have a calibration to, to your own kind of study and see, see where you are, just kind of a reality check. Uh, so that's useful. And then, you know, competition generally drives innovation and uh, you guys learn a lot from doing this, right? Like management, leadership, research, like a lot of things, right? And so uh, so, so that's why I'm really interested and, and uh, I try my best to, uh, to support uh, you guys doing this. And before me, I don't think there is a, uh, there was much, um, I guess, I don't think there was any iGEM team before last year at yeah, UBCO. Right? No. Yeah, I mm -hmm. yeah, think you. I like what you said about, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was okay. going to say, I really liked what you said about um, like competition driving innovation because like we've heard of a, of a good number of startups coming from iGEM projects in the past. So that was really cool to hear. Yeah. Do you I kind of experience a similar thing when you're reading through all the papers that are coming out within your own field? I guess it's kind of a larger scale thing uh, of what we experience when we go to the iGEM competition and see other teams working on cool projects at the undergraduate level. I guess you have the same experience when you see other mechanobiology labs publishing and then kind of realize what they're working on. Like, can you speak to that experience a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, uh, uh, you know, it's always good to see what people are working on and say, oh, you know, how come I didn't think of this? Oh, that's really interesting study. You know, from this, you can learn a lot more things. Uh, and, um, uh, and so I think, I think it's an interesting experience. And I think um, just the whole like, science is really about, you know, the whole world working together on interesting, uh, impactful projects, right? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think the iGEM is a very healthy, uh, collaborative uh, environment. It's not not so much about competition, but more about, uh, you know, what together, you know, everybody can do. Contribute. And I see you guys meet with you know universities from elsewhere, and everybody was like, okay, you know what? I'll give you this, do this. Like it's not about competition, even though the name is competition, but it's really good. And so you know, I want to see more of that in uh, in the research field. Uh, a lot of times, you know, if you know someone's working on similar things, it's like, oh, do I continue to work on this? Or, or <laughs> like it's 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 a sometimes it's a little uh, stressful in that sense um, because I think maybe the conversation uh, needs to happen more often, uh, but sometimes you just don't know who's working on what. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's kind of an argument to be, to be had between open science and then also keeping some research proprietary. Like, how do you see that interaction happen within within the field right now? Do you think it's more tending towards keeping, you know, research private and a more competitive nature, or is it pretty open? I think in general, at least in the biophysics field in Canada, it's pretty open. Like we are very open to everybody about what we do. We share you know, unpublished data and just, you know, uh, see what comes out of it. 
uh, it only becomes competitive, for example, when uh, you have commercial interest, right? So for example, if you develop a technology that um, you know, potentially can go into a patent, then there are things like, you know, you cannot publicly disclose it until you file a patent and so on. So, so that is when you have to be like, eh, yeah, sorry, I can't share unless you, uh, you know, you sign an NTA or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, I think, I think generally speaking, the Canadian academic environment is quite, quite healthy and I, I really enjoy all my colleagues in biophysics just talking more on like your career path and everything are there any particular achievements or milestone in your career that you're particularly proud of well uh i mean finishing phd i was very happy <laughs> i think every time you graduate you're pretty happy right? uh so finishing phd i was very happy finishing masters i was pretty happy and uh Getting a position at UBC, I was pretty happy. Uh, and then uh, there were several you know, uh, awards that I, I got in the past. Uh, each time when that happens, it's like, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so it's a recognition. So for example, the Michael Smith uh, Scholar, the Canada Research Chair, you know, there was also a UBC Researcher of the Year, but stuff like that. And then finally, this year, I just got my tenure. So, you know, like, good, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Nice to hear. Um, I'll just go on with the next question. So I'm, I'm sure being a researcher is no easy tasks, even like with the whole team beside you. So what is your favorite activity to do outside of work? And do any of your extracurricular passions influence your work or how you work? Oh, oh man, that is a hard question. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think I think uh, in terms of outside of work, so I have a dog, right? I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, spending time playing with the dog. So it's a, it's a black Shiba Inu. So uh, interesting little guy. We got it just before COVID. Um, um, but outside of the dog and this you know, family life, uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we uh, my wife and I, we often go hiking, uh, you know, I would love to travel a bit more, but, you know, being a assistant professor, uh, it is sometimes difficult uh, because you have so many students and friends and so on, so on. So time was always the limiting uh, limiting factor. Um, but, you know, if, if if I've got more more time, I would love to travel around a bit more and then, um, uh, I play music instrument, and those are kind of fun, just as a side hobby. Uh, and uh, yeah, so pretty much just that. <laughs> um, just kind of wrapping up here, we have one question that we normally ask to everyone that comes onto our podcast because we like getting advice from people within the scientific community that we admire. Um, so if you had one piece of advice for the next generation of researchers and people who want to contribute to science, what would it be? I think I think um, one piece of, of advice I would like to a student to keep in mind is, you know, you guys are still at a very early career stage. So don't be afraid of doing things. Don't think too much about the future or, you know, there's a lot of uncertainties about exactly what I'm going to be, right? I plan to be this, but would I actually get there? Like, don't plan too far. Uh, do what you can do at its best for your current position. 
and you know your the opportunity will take you um, somewhere in the future and all of you will be very successful ultimately and sometimes one person takes a different path from an, an, another person and it's it's all very normal it's all part of life and uh, but most importantly is really uh, don't feel this anxiety about uh, the unknown future right and mm -hmm. all of you will have a bright future so you know enjoy what you do do the only thing, like only do the things that you enjoy. Uh, and, uh, you know, if there, you, you, you find yourself working on something you have no passion about or you don't like, you know, change something you, you actually enjoy, right? So it's really about self-discovery, uh, figuring out what you want. And once you are on the path of working on what you want to do and what you're really passionate about, uh, you know, you, you, will, you will become very successful. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Thank you so much for that. I think it is easy to get too caught up in, you know, what the next steps are, even after graduation, what exactly you want to research and people often get ahead of themselves. So I think that's very refreshing advice for anyone listening who's still early in their, their research career. Yeah, and, and I think uh, part of the reason is that if you're really caught up, oh my God, you know, am I, am I doing the right thing at the moment, then you lose a lot of creativity, you lose a lot of time worrying and that doesn't really contribute to anything positive, right? And so, um, and it's not like worrying will actually get you somewhere else. Thinking.